Our evenings together, we have been spending our time looking through the prophet Jeremiah. This evening, we continue looking at Jeremiah uh, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. As we begin, I will read just the first six verses, but ask that you keep your Bible open as we will make our way through chapter 15 and verse 9. But as we begin, Jeremiah 14, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads because of the ground that is dismayed. Since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, as your word is open before us, may our hearts also be open. We pray, Father, that the divine hand power of your spirit would come upon us and give us understanding to your word, change our hearts and wills to conform them to your purposes for us, your purposes for the gospel, your purposes for the world. Father, may we see these things and embrace them by faith. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. I am sure that you have had those experiences where events around you are unrolling And there is nothing you can do about it. At first, perhaps you try and do damage control. You try and insert yourself with words and actions that you hope will steer events in a more positive direction. At least a more desirable direction than they seem headed. And you might even have a high level of anxiety about it. But alas, you realize it's simply too late. You or life has set in motion a train of consequences that are irreversible. There is no going back. And now come a cascade of implications over which you have no control whatsoever. Now, when you are not to blame or the consequences have no direct connection to your own actions, that is one thing. Not not saying that makes it easy by any means. But it is quite different in those times where you have to admit, I deserve this. This is exactly what I should have known was going to happen. Or as Christians, when we say, God was clear, a man reaps what he sows, but I didn't listen. And now, well, here comes what I deserve, what I get, what is the obvious consequence of my actions my words, and or my behavior. And like King David, there might be true remorse, even true repentance. And God grants forgiveness that is beyond even a shadow of a doubt, but consequences follow nonetheless. David's son died. David's household rebelled. David had to watch the disintegration of his entire family. Was he forgiven? Oh, undoubtedly. Was he made to suffer consequences for his actions? Again, undoubtedly. Please, 
I don't want anyone to misunderstand. The Lord can remove consequences or he can, he can lessen them if he so chooses. And perhaps you can think of times when God in his mercy did not allow the consequences to overwhelm you in full. He can do that. And on a pastoral note, my advice to you would be that when you find yourself in such circumstance, you should confess to the Lord that he is good. That he does all things well. Tell him that you accept from his hand all the consequences that he deems right to send you. Tell him you will praise him in full voice in the midst of the most painful results. That you will never, never accuse him or think him unwise. And then plead mercy. Beg mercy. Who knows? Perhaps he will stay his hand. But if not, own it. Own all of it. And let the discipline of God do its work. For if, if you do not, well, there will only be more to come. Twice in our text, we hear the cries and lamentations of God's people. And twice we hear these frightening words from Yahweh. I am not listening. It's too late. All there is now is consequence for your walking away from me. You now get what you deserve. That might be the most frightening thing a man or woman could ever hear. The Lord say to you, you're going to get what you deserve. Now, if we are to understand Jeremiah's message, there are two things we must keep in mind. The question might be, well, what good is there crying out to the Lord? What good is there repentance if God is not listening? Why are we told this, that they cried out to God and yet he turned away? Why would that be in the Bible? Uh, the first thing to remember is that Jeremiah has two audiences. There are those who have yet to feel the weight of their rebellion. They are getting ready to go into exile. Those to whom the Lord says directly, I am not listening. And then there are those 70 years later who after the exile are coming back to Jerusalem. It is as though someone in Israel was saying, look, it's too late for me and my generation Please learn from our sins and our errors. Do not make the mistakes we made. All of this is told you in detail about our stubborn, wicked, arrogant hearts so that you would not do the same thing. The Apostle Paul says the same thing about the wilderness wanderers. These things were written, he says. These stories are told for our benefit that we would not be like them, that we would not do what they did. The second thing we must remember, and I admit this is a bit con of conjecture, but necessary, is that the folly that we read about, the sin that is to be punished, that was punished, is collective and national. That doesn't mean there were not individuals within the people of God who were faithful, who listened and who stood apart from the majority of the folks who were in high-handed rebellion against Yahweh. Certainly there were those people who listened to Jeremiah who went home and sat down with their spouse and their children and said, Jeremiah is right. He's a true prophet. His words are from the Lord. 
We know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know of Daniel. We know there were faithful men and women who ended up in exile. Yes, the righteous are at times carried away with the wicked. That is not hard to prove biblically or historically. We, for instance, we don't know what God will do with our own country. None of us would argue that we are deeply grateful that we as a nation do not get what we deserve. But more pointedly, no one would think the Lord in the wrong to severely discipline the church in our country for all of our foolishness. We have made peace with sin and wickedness. We have remained quiet while murder and injustice becomes the norm. We have invited the world into our sanctuaries. We have bowed the knee to Baal. If the Lord purged the church, and if it started tomorrow, do you not think the righteous would perish with the wicked? Now, again, you're thinking, Pastor, this is just frightening. What are we to do? Well, what do you mean, what are you to do? We are to stand true. And we are to speak and live without compromise, accepting from the Lord's hand whatever he deems right to send. And I am not, <laughs> I'm not being melodramatic. We are to prepare to die. But brothers and sisters, make sure, make sure that you die well. Not shrill, not sounding like a lunatic. Give yourself to the Lord in humility and faithfulness and strength. The announcement of God's punishment comes at the beginning in the form of a famine. We read that. Remember, famine was just one of those covenant curses the Lord promised all those years ago for disobedience. Four times in verses 3 through 6 we read, No water, no rain, no grass, no food. And not even, um, or I should say, even the non-humans will suffer. The doe, her newborn fawn, wild donkeys, even jackals. So once again, creation suffers for the sins of mankind. She groans, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, creation groans for redemption. Creation weeps as she awaits all things being made new. When God brings his devastations, human beings and animals are scarcely different. Look in chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your namesake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope of Israel, its Savior in times of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord concerning his people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Now, I confess, this is where it gets a little bit dicey. The people do what we would expect, what we might even hope they would do. They cry out to the Lord and they speak true words. In verse 7, we would say they, they even confess their sin. They admit that they sin in so many ways. Literally, they say, many are our turnings. And they address the Lord. They, they address the glory of his name as being the most important. And then they beg. They literally beg, do not forsake us. But, oh, the irony. 
How many times have we seen Jeremiah saying to the people over and over again that they have forsaken the Lord? Over and over again, he has warned them about forsaking the Lord. And now they are begging God not to forsake them. You have to feel the passage. Your heart right now should be racing a little faster. This is life and death. Remember back in chapter 2, part of our liturgy this evening, Jeremiah said that they had forsaken the fountain of living water and hewn for themselves cisterns that hold no water. They had forsaken the Lord and said, I don't need you. I am sufficient in myself. And now they are running to the Lord saying, hey, Lord, we have no water. Well, no kidding. What did you think was going to happen? And before we get all high and mighty, hasn't the Lord said that to us? Oh, perhaps by God's mercy, not with ultimate punishment waiting for us, but discipline, maybe even severe discipline. Hasn't he said to you, what what did you think was going to happen? You go marching out on your own. In your self-centered, self-propagating arrogance, rejecting me, rejecting my word, what did you think was going to happen? I know we've said this before, but it bears repeating. Words, even true words, are not enough. How many times are we speaking words? Are we writing checks with our words that our faith can by no means cash? Or how often do we make the mistake of thinking that just because we say something and we say it enough that it makes it true how many times do we just just utter Christian words, Christian language, Christian speech, but the evidence of those words being true well, is not found, not in our lives anyway. So they pour out their hearts, they beg and plead, and we get what we would never expect. God says, no, no, I do not accept you. Now, brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing, hear this. I, I want you to know we are in Deep, deep and dark water this evening. We are peering into something that I think many would wish to ignore, perhaps just wish away. But this is undoubtedly a biblical teaching, namely that there is a point of no return. There is a point where we harden ourselves by our sin and by our doing our own thing, going our own way, perhaps all the while speaking the right words, but we wander so far that we make ourselves impervious to true change. And if you are waiting for some kind of formula or explanation that will help you know when that is or what is too far, you will not learn it from me. Because I don't know. I I don't know how far is too far, how much sinning is too much. But I can tell you this. I think we should all stand in awe this evening that none of us are there now. God's mercy be praised. And then bow your back. Stiffen your Christian resolve and say to the Lord, I will never go Anywhere near such a life as that, God help me. Interestingly, Jeremiah actually tries to defend the people to the Lord, not not by saying they are innocent, but by trying to blame it on the false prophets. The reason they are so bad is that they've had bad teachers. Surely it's not really their fault if only the ministers had been faithful. And while that is true, and the Lord doesn't refute Jeremiah's argument, 
He makes it clear in verse 16 that this is falling on the people due to their own wickedness. Chapter 14, look at verse 17 through 18. You shall say to them this word. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold, those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. The language here is devastating. The language continues to build, build, and build. And once again, the veil is pulled back and we get a holy glimpse. And and not to be taken lightly, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. We move from overwhelming wrath to overflowing tears. And the tears are Yahweh's. My virgin daughter. My people. God's pain is real. The God who judges is also the God who sings. The God who shouts. The God who runs. And the God who weeps. The passion of the prayer gains momentum. Pick up the reading in chapter 14, verse 19, through the end of that chapter. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Verse 20 almost causes causes us to throw up our hands. In true sorrow for this people. Because we read that and we realize they they don't get it. They're so unaware. They are completely unaware of themselves. They are completely unaware of what they have done. They say to the Lord, almost, almost demanding, Remember your covenant with us and don't break it. Really? What is about to fall upon you is God breaking the covenant. Not, not, not you breaking it. It's God breaking it. When things get bad and we begin to feel the effects deeply, how easy is it for us to try and find someone to blame? Where can we slough off enough of the guilt and shame that we do not feel to be as broken as we truly are? And so the Lord declares this generation is beyond hope. Even if Moses and Samuel, two great intercessors, were to plead for this people, God would not listen. Chapter 15, the first four verses. Then the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. The mention of Manasseh, who you remember was the worst and most evil king in the history of Judah, reminds the people that this this has been building. The Lord has been patient. He has been long-suffering. 
but alas, no more. Verse 5 of chapter 15. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask you about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them. Suddenly, she who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Although God says he will not listen to them. They must once again listen to him. He has something else to say. They might blame their pastors, the prophets, and that would be true to a point. They might uh, point to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And again, there is no denying the fear and pressure of that great nation. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, there are two parties involved in this and no more. A sinful, backsliding, arrogant people and a sovereign God whom they had rejected, but who still holds their destiny in his hands. The questions in verse 5, who will? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Commentator Christopher Wright puts it this way. He says it would have sounded like this. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? I would have if only you had turned to me long before now. Who will mourn for you? I already do and will continue to weep for your suffering. Who will even stop and ask, how are you? I would gladly show my concern for you. But though I am the only one who would do so, I am not welcome among you. I am the very one you have deliberately excluded. But let's not get confused. It is not I who has rejected you, but you who have rejected me. And as I said earlier, for all, for all the words, all the true sounding words, God says, you keep on backsliding. You have not changed your ways. Oh, your words may have changed. But your behavior has not changed. And then look at the end of verse 6. It says, I am tired of relenting. Other translations say, I am tired of holding you back. Uh, too many last chances. In other words, and this is, this is devastating to think about, that God might actually say to his people, I find you exhausting. Isaiah writes, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you will weary my God also? Isaiah 43, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And then from Malachi, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? It's possible to weary God with our words. Somehow, somehow the life of God is being spent because of his people's unfaithfulness. He holds back, he holds back until he can do so no longer. 
But even in reading this, I, I hope, and as we said at the beginning, this is one of the reasons why Jeremiah is so difficult to preach. It's relentless. This kind of language and this kind of judgment is relentless throughout Jeremiah's writings. But even as we read, I hope and trust that your mind is racing ahead. Could it be? Could it be that our God who suffers so long with his people endures so much of their and, and our fickle and unfaithful hearts? I say, could it be that in the midst of all of this, God is preparing to take a further step? An unbelievable, too hard even to conceive of step. That he, God, will take the sins of his people right into the divine life and bear them there. Even more, take on a body. Become a servant, sharing in our humanity. And to suffer, ultimately suffer, for the mess that is his people. You know, Jeremiah, as a man, the prophet Jeremiah, to a large degree, perhaps more than any of us in this room, conforms his own life to the very weariness of God. But not ultimately. Not ultimately. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he will do so ultimately. So, I want to conclude this evening with these words of the Lord. Yes, Deep and dark theology, to be sure. But listen, always sounding this, this note of hope. God is preparing to do something in light of all of this that is inconceivable. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now listen, but I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Or perhaps most profoundly, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For him who has ears to hear, amen. A gracious God in heaven, through all the deep water we wade through in your word, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you, Father, that you call out sin as it is. You call out the sin in our hearts as it is. But we thank you, Father, that in redemption you do not leave us to simply run round and round in our own sin, but that you have provided the answer for us, the, the redemption that is ours in Christ. 
Help us to see our sin clearly, Father, that we might be chased to the Savior, that we might cling to him and never let go. May Jesus be all the more precious to us. May your love for us overwhelm us, that we might live a life to your glory and pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.